Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the Pandora Papers, a massive data leak detailing the complex financial dealings of the world, rich and powerful. In October 2021, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, in coordination with other news outlets, began releasing analyses of 11.9 million files leaked from 14 different offshore companies that advise primarily wealthy clients on legal and financial transactions. In what has been billed as the largest ever leak of this kind, the files purport to expose financial secrets, hidden assets of a broad range of individuals, from politicians to celebrities to magnets. Perhaps most surprisingly, these so-called Pandora Papers highlight how these United States have become one of the world's biggest tax havens for wealthy individuals. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, they've done it again. Oops. This time, they uncovered a Pandora's box of fascinating details about how the world's wealthiest conceal that wealth. And it's not the first time. This is the same group that brought us the Panama Papers. They also brought us the Paradise Papers, the Mauritius leaks, and so on. And let's be real, this is probably not the last week that we'll see uncovered by the group. Nope. But it is unique in that it is the biggest so far. The leaked documents name over 35 world leaders, more than 300 other public officials, some celebrities thrown in there for good measure, over 100 billionaires bringing new meaning to notorious B.I.G. saying, mo money, mo problems. And my work here is done. The fact that taxes are making you think of a rap song, we're good. I've done my, I've done my job. <laughs> Journalists have spent the last 18 months trying to make sense of these leaked documents. I guess that gave them something to do during COVID. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, most of what has been uncovered to date is not on its face illegal. But it started to raise some pretty good questions. And one of the biggest questions raised so far is how the United States, and South Dakota in particular, has found itself in the position of being one of the most prolific tax havens used in these leaked documents. The investigation identified over 200 U.S.-based trusts linked to 41 countries, and some of these trusts are connected to people or companies accused of fraud, bribery, or human rights violations. But let's start with that phrase tax haven, because it tends to conjure up, at least for me, images of Caribbean islands and yachts and rich people with fruity drinks with umbrellas sitting on those yachts, not South Dakota. No, I think tax haven, I think Tom Cruise making Elizabeth Shue a fruity cocktail. Mm, Cocktails and dreams. Cocktails and dreams. Aruba, Jamaica. Who I want to take. Who I want to take you. From Notorious B.I.G. to the Beach Boys, we have varied, varied musical interests on this podcast. But we digress. Tom Cruise, Elizabeth Shue, Fruity Drinks, we're not finding these things in South Dakota. Right. But really, B, what what makes a tax haven? Beyond Tom Cruise and Fruity Drinks, what does a tax haven mean to you? Well, Lisa, like so many things in the tax world, a tax haven can mean something different to each of us. Seriously, there is no universal definition of a tax haven, but typically I think of a tax haven as checking three boxes. First, it's a jurisdiction. We typically think of countries, but it could be any jurisdiction that offers low or no taxes. 
Second, it allows outsiders to easily come to that jurisdiction and set up shop there. And third, it requires limited disclosure about the owners. To understand how a place like South Dakota could become a tax haven, we're going to need a little history lesson here. And that history lesson has to deal with bank secrecy and a little financial transparency bill passed by Congress in 2010. Before this bill was passed in 2010, and even now, the U.S. was mostly concerned with U.S. citizens hiding their income and wealth from the U.S. to evade taxes. And this matters because the U.S. is one of the few countries that taxes its citizens on their global income, regardless of where those citizens reside or where the income is earned. Some foreign jurisdictions historically have found that they could generate a significant amount of business by letting U.S. citizens and citizens from other countries open a bank account in their country And then the bank would promise not to disclose information about the account back to the account holder's home country. And there are some reasonable reasons for offering secrecy. Harmful agents like potential kidnappers, they would know exactly how much to ask for to get your child back, right? So privacy means something in this context, but there's also nefarious reasons to want this privacy, and that includes tax evasion. All right. So let's say we have a wealthy American, we'll call him Mr. Moneybags. And he wants to move a million dollars into a bank account in Switzerland. He chooses Switzerland because it is actually used to be a federal crime to disclose identifying information about clients of financial institutions to anyone, even to other governments. So Moneybags wants to invest this $1 million in assets. They're going to pay a dividend annually of $50,000. If Mr. Moneybags were compliant with the tax law in the U.S., he would report this $50,000 of income on his tax return and pay, let's say, $10,000 in tax. However, because Mr. Moneybags knows that the Swiss bank account won't tell the IRS about his income, he can choose not to report it and pay no tax. Right. And the choice by Mr. Moneybags not to report this income back to the U.S., it's illegal tax evasion that's being facilitated by a culture of bank secrecy in the country where that person has an offshore account. Further, this country, in order to attract this type of business, may not tax the deposits or income earned within those accounts by non-residents. And now Switzerland is starting to sound like a tax haven. They offer low or no taxes on the income earned off of these deposits in their accounts, and they had legal prohibitions against disclosing information about account holders to other governments. So we've got that limited disclosure, that secrecy element. Exactly. And so lots of people from all over the world were taking advantage of Swiss bank secrecy. And just because you hold an account in Switzerland doesn't mean the assets have to stay there. So a lot of uh, investors have a preference to invest back in their home country totally fine. U.S. account holders could hide cash in an account in Switzerland, but then invest from that account back into the U.S. stock market, thereby taking advantage of that home country bias. And so a beneficial set of tax rules in place before 2010 wouldn't tax the gains or dividends paid out to that account as long as the account holder asserted and the bank confirmed that they were not U.S. citizens. So U.S. taxpayers could have everything be secret in Switzerland, Mm -hmm. And then they could take it a step further and add another layer of secrecy by setting up the account in the name of a foreign shell company. So this is obviously a problem for the U.S. in terms of lost tax revenues. 
And despite previous attempts by the U.S. and other jurisdictions to either require banks to provide them with account holder information or to lure taxpayers who really were U.S. citizens to come clean by providing some amnesty programs, the only real true challenge to Swiss bank secrecy since World War II came at the hands of a U.S. citizen, an individual named Bradley Birkenfeld. So Bradley Birkenfeld worked at UBS, which is a financial institution, and his job was specifically to market UBS accounts and financial services to wealthy foreign clients, including those in the U.S. Now, despite being a U.S. citizen, Birkenfeld didn't realize that his job was illegal until around 2005. And perhaps that was the year that he allegedly helped a customer smuggle diamonds out of the U.S. in a toothpaste tube. When Birkenfeld complained formally to his superiors at UBS about the illegal nature of his work that he, you know, suddenly realized he was doing, he was basically told not to worry about it. And he took this, uh, I think, accurately as a signal that UBS was going to leave him out in the cold if the U.S. ever found out about his line of work and came knocking. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. And in 2007, he voluntarily contacted U.S. authorities and started giving them confidential materials, including U.S. client names of account holders at UBS, which I'm going to say it again, at the time was illegal under Swiss federal law. Although our friend Mr. Birkenfeld did spend some time in jail, he also benefited from this little fact that tax whistleblowers in the U.S. are entitled to a reward of up to 30% of recovered taxes. The IRS gave him 26% of the $400 million in evaded taxes that they were able to collect thanks to his information on UBS clients. So he got a payout of over $100 million. By the end of 2010, Swiss Parliament agreed on a law allowing UBS to turn over client lists to U.S. authorities, and that led to the disclosure of this information and the U.S. Department of Justice dropping its criminal case against UBS. In the end, UBS paid a fine of about $780 million to the U.S. government and disclosed information on over 4,000 undeclared accounts of U.S. persons. Since 2008, the Justice Department has prosecuted a number of other foreign banks and received over 300 whistleblowing tips on offshore tax evasion. Their Birkenfeld saga with UBS really was just a, a tipping point. In March of 2010, the U.S. government passed the Foreign Account Tax and Compliance Act, or FATCA, and for the first time, it required banks, foreign banks, mind you, to automatically remit information about U.S. account holders back to the U.S. The law was really clever in how it incentivized banks to comply. If a bank didn't, the U.S. would apply a 30% tax on dividends, interest, and proceeds from the sale of U.S. assets on all of the bank's account holders, not just the U.S. persons, but all of them. That's bold. And it created a huge incentive for banks to either comply or not take U.S. citizens as account holders. Which is going to be a big revenue loss to the financial institutions. And pretty hard on U.S. citizens living abroad. So Joel Slemrod and others have evidence that a lot of taxpayers who had been hiding income from the U.S. through these bank secrecy laws actually came forward and paid taxes on that income. So yay, it worked, right? Well, it worked to a certain extent. Um, so I have some research with Becky Lester and Kevin Markle that taxpayers, some of them anyway, instead they did things to try to avoid reporting. So they could renounce their U.S. citizenship to avoid U.S. taxes on their worldwide income. They could convert these financial assets that were subject to the new reporting requirement into assets that 
were not subject to a reporting requirement, things like artwork and real estate. And two colleagues here at the University of Texas with me, Brady Williams and Andrew Belknap, have evidence that much of the information that has been turned over by foreign banks as a result of FATCA, it's not even usable by the IRS in many cases because it lacks a taxpayer identifying number that the IRS could use to match that bank report back to the tax return of the U.S. person. One of the biggest consequences of FATCA, though, is that other countries realized how brilliant it was and decided to adopt similar rules. In fact, they took it even further and entered into agreements, not only to require foreign banks to provide account information on their citizens, but also to share the information collected by their own banks with the relevant foreign tax authorities. So a whole bunch of countries started collecting and sharing this information under what's called the Common Reporting Standard, or CRS. This sounds like a great, yeah, let's all share the information. Yep, all of us, absolutely, 100%, all of us. um, Just one tiny, tiny little footnote. But Um, I mean, but definitely the U.S., because the U.S. came up with this policy. So of course you're going to participate in your own policy. And you would never want, as the U.S., to be known as a tax haven that's not sharing this information, right? Like that's only for like shady island nations, right? Yeah, no, not so much. U.S. didn't sign on. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. So we've just told the story of how the U.S. as a tax haven was born. Specifically, we focused on how the U.S. has checked that secrecy box on the tax haven checklist by not signing on to an international financial information sharing agreement that it basically was responsible for. But remember, to be a real tax haven, a jurisdiction also has to offer low or no taxes and easily allow entities to set up shop in their jurisdiction. So let's now get into how South Dakota, of all the states, ended up front and center to the Pandora Papers. So South Dakota is certainly uh, one of the more important states, but also Nevada, Texas, Florida, and New Hampshire as popular places for foreigners, that is non-U.S. citizens or residents, to park their wealth. Like you said, we've talked about secrecy, but these particular states also check that low or no tax box because they have favorable tax policies. And we'll circle back to that, but perhaps even more important than their favorable tax policies, these states have favorable policies regarding a particular type of legal entity that is often used for estate planning and other types of tax planning called a trust. So it's basically a legal entity with three key parties associated with it. The first party is a grantor or settler, and that's the party that puts assets into the trust. The second party is the trustee, who's charged with managing the assets in the trust and if or when any distributions from the trust are made. And the third party is the beneficiary who can receive distributions from the trust. So to put this in terms that listeners like myself can understand, Iris McKay would be the grantor of a trust, Jim Walsh would be the trustee, and Dylan McKay would be the beneficiary of a trust, let's say, set up hypothetically in Beverly Hills, 90210. One original rationale behind the trust structure was to allow, as you just said, a parent to provide for their children if they were to die before the children came of age. My examples are always relevant and on point, even if they are based on teen dramas. From 30 years ago. You didn't. Wow. (laughs) Have I upset you today? 
Sorry, I apologize. If it helps, if it helps, I was also calling myself old. That's true. Okay. I'll, I'll own it. It's fine. It's fine. So the parents in this example contribute assets to the trust so that the assets could be managed by a trusted adult so that the assets are preserved for the benefit of the child as the child ages. If they left the assets directly to the child, the child may not be so great at managing assets or understand the time value of money, and those assets wouldn't be there when the child becomes an adult. Alternatively, if you were to leave it to a once-trusted family member, unfortunately, not all family members should be trusted. There's no guarantee that they would use those assets for the benefit of the child. Once again, we would not leave this money directly to Dylan McKay because he was a teenage alcoholic with a gambling problem. Mm -hmm. And we also could not leave it to his father, Jack McKay, who was a known white-collar criminal. So that is why we needed to put this money in the hands of Jim Walsh, trusted adult from the Midwest. So the trustee is legally bound to manage the assets in a way that benefits the child in this example. Of course, trust can get really complicated really quickly, particularly when the grantor, trustee, and beneficiary themselves are legal entities, not just individuals. It also gets more complicated if there's actually overlap between these three parties, let's say because the grantor is also one of the trustees. But one of the great things about having these three separate roles in the trust is that none of the three parties could claim that they own the assets. The grantor previously owned the assets, but now doesn't have control over those assets anymore. The trustee has control over the assets. They manage them, but not for their own benefit. Right. And the beneficiary benefits from the assets, but doesn't have control over them. The reason that all of this is so important is that it protects the assets from potential creditors. A bank can come after me personally and potentially take my home and the clothes off my back but they can't pierce a trust I put some of my financial assets into because I don't have control over those assets. Right. And the thing is, states vary in the extent to which they're willing to provide these protections to a trust. So the states called out in the Pandora Papers are used by foreign billionaires in part because they have been so cutting edge in creating really secure asset protection and privacy regulations over trusts. In South Dakota, for example, all of the records about who created the trust, how much is in the trust, who benefits from the trust, et cetera, they're all completely private forever until a leak, of course. Of course. These South Dakota trusts are so private that oftentimes the creator of the trust doesn't even have to notify the beneficiary that a trust was created that names them as a beneficiary. So am I the only one sitting here hoping that there is a South, <laughs> a South Dakota trust somewhere that I am the beneficiary of? I'm, sh I'm sure there's several. And lastly... The states have set it up so that they won't tax income earned by the trust. Bam, these states have checked all of the boxes. Now, there's still the possibility of having to pay federal income tax, but that is not a foregone conclusion, right? Right. So we're going to keep this kind of high level here. The U.S. taxes non-residents or non-citizens only on income they earn that's connected to a U.S. business or can be sourced to the U.S. So if these trusts don't invest in assets that generate those types of income, they could escape U.S. taxation altogether at both the state and the federal level. And that's a thing of beauty. Pretty fancy. What's interesting to me is how long and hard some of these states worked to get favorable trust laws enacted and how the trust industries in these states have since taken off. New Hampshire's trust industry oversees some $600 billion in assets, and South Dakota's industry only had $57 billion in assets 10 years ago, 
but there are now 360 billion in assets alone revealed by the Pandora Papers leak. So South Dakota was really ahead of the curve from the beginning. Most states limit the duration of a trust. The idea being that a family wouldn't be able to avoid estate taxes for generation after generation. South Dakota said, eh, we're okay with that. So in 1983, they passed legislation explicitly allowing for long-lasting so-called dynasty trusts that never, ever expire. Dynasty being another Aaron Spelling drama. <laughs> it all connects. It all connects. Now it's time for our favorite part of the show, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today, B is mad at me because I'm the one who has to get stuck trying to see the good here. I'm mad at you because you called me old. If you had, if you had let it go, I would be doing the bad right now. Gotta say, um, I'm coming up short on seeing the good here. I'm gonna try, and I'm gonna feel a little dirty while I'm doing it. But uh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'm gonna give South Dakota props here for identifying a, uh, let's say, creative a creative way of stimulating its local economy. It's just that, you know, maybe our economic growth plan shouldn't center on attracting the world's tax dodgers and criminals. Maybe just throwing that out there. I tried. I love your very noble and (laughs) earnest effort to come up with something good. And that effort still somehow ended with a big old baddie. And I really, I can't blame you because there's not, there's not a lot to love here. No, there's not. Yes, there are some valid reasons for wanting to protect your assets from, say, bogus lawsuits or kidnappers, but asset protection and privacy laws can clearly go too far. And one of the articles released by these journalists tells a story of a parent who can't even get child support payments from an ex-spouse because she allegedly put all her assets into a South Dakota trust. That's no bueno. No bueno. In January of 2020... Congress enacted the Corporate Transparency Act, and this is a step in the right direction because it requires some businesses to disclose the names of owners to a central federal database. So great first step. The problem is this bill said nothing about trusts. Yeah, that's a problem. Maybe the Pandora Papers are going to spur Congress into action to start putting trust and transparency into the same sentence, maybe. Otherwise, the U.S. is just going to continue to be a tax haven for wealthy foreigners. And I gotta say... That's not my favorite look on us. No, it's a terrible look. And here's where it gets really ugly. Hmm. The U.S. is benefiting from exactly the type of financial secrecy that it went to great lengths to shut down in places like Switzerland. Exactly. Since FATCA and this common reporting, hundreds of billions of dollars have left the old financial secrecy regimes of Switzerland and these island tax havens that we traditionally think of, and now it's ending up in a handful of U.S. states? I mean, that is hypocrisy at its finest. Yeah, at best, this is a a big old case of oopsie. But that skeptic in me wonders if maybe this was just the plan all along. And I got to wonder how much political motivation there's going to be to join the rest of the world on transparency when our financial services industries in the great states of South Dakota and Texas and Florida and New Hampshire, et cetera, are only going to stand to benefit from the status quo. I really hope you're right. I really hope this is a mistake. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.